It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Do you experience moments of self-doubt about your achievements? Do you think everyone else knows more than you do? Do you have a hard time seeing the value in the services you provide? Imposter syndrome is that little voice in your head that casts doubt and makes you feel like you're not good enough. It can stop you from moving forward and miss out on opportunities. Joining us today to discuss strategies to navigate the feelings of inadequacy is Elaine Pofelt, a small business specialist who is the author of The Million Dollar One Person Business, and Tiny Business, Big Money. Elaine is an independent journalist who specializes in small business and entrepreneurship. Her work has appeared on CNBC and in Fortune Money Forbes and many other publications. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much, Joan. It's always so great to talk with you. I feel the same way, Elaine, because you are such a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, you and I had a conversation not too long ago, which led up to us doing this interview. And it was about imposter syndrome and how oftentimes we as entrepreneurs may have that feeling like we don't belong doing what we're doing. And and if we're doing it, maybe we're not as good as someone else. And so why do you think this occurs? Why does imposter syndrome creep into our minds? One reason, Joan, I think is because being an entrepreneur is a leap for many people. We're told that we should be employees by our parents, by our teachers, basically by all of society as we're growing up. And so simply saying that you want to run a business is an act of courage, and it seems a little defiant. So I think people have a tendency to say, hey, do I deserve to call myself an entrepreneur? It's kind of like being a writer. People feel like, you know, have I written enough to really call myself a writer? Or have I painted enough paintings to call myself a painter? There's not really a set credential. So when there is no credential, you can't go out and say, oh, I got a degree in whatever. So therefore, I am an entrepreneur. Um, So I think that is one reason it holds people back. And I think it's really important for all of us as entrepreneurs to do the internal work on ourselves. Because if we're feeling inadequate and and we lack self-esteem, we're really going to have a challenge putting ourselves out there being the so-called expert in our field. You're so right about that. I think many of us have internalized the negative voices of people who criticize us in the past. For some reason, one negative voice can outweigh hundreds of positive voices. So one of the most important things for future and current entrepreneurs to do is to really interrogate and challenge those voices and ask yourself if they are realistic. Just because, for instance, one boss didn't like one project you did, does that mean you're completely incompetent? Probably not, but it may have made you feel that way at the time. So part of it is doing that internal work and and seeing if what you believe is actually realistic. Um, A good way to challenge it is to get real-world feedback when you uh, 
put your work out there. If customers aren't happy with it, ask them for a testimonial or ask them for feedback on it and see what they say. That, that will often give entrepreneurs confidence. It's been reported that entrepreneurs and freelance consultants are more susceptible to imposter syndrome because they rely on self-confidence to make a living and they don't have the support network to help them when these moments arise. You know, we as entrepreneurs tend to work within this bubble. We're really removed from the type of support that can help us get through that. Do you agree with that assessment from what you've seen? Yes, and I think it's it's very telling that in my book, Tiny Business, Big Money, 45% of the entrepreneurs who are at seven figures belong to an entrepreneurship group and 37% have a business coach. It's important to have positive reinforcement with whatever you do. And if you're living in an area where most people have traditional jobs, you're not going to get much reinforcement for the way that you're choosing to live. Entrepreneurship is a type of career, but it's also a lifestyle because when you don't have a steady paycheck coming in every week, two weeks, month, you have to manage your money differently. You may be less inclined to do things like put a big vacation on a credit card because you know you're going to have to hustle up the work to pay for it, where someone in a corporate job knows that their paycheck is coming and they can chip away at it. So you'll have to make different decisions from other people. And at times it can be lonely and alienating. If you're around other people who are pursuing their dream as entrepreneurs, you'll be able to stick with it more uh, in, in those circumstances. I think a big problem that comes from these feelings of inadequacy, from al- allowing those thoughts to infiltrate your mind, is when the time comes to price your services and someone says to you, what do you charge for that? I think that's the biggest issue that we have because I, I know for myself, sometimes I almost choke on my words when I'm trying to tell someone what I charge for a service, all the people that you've interviewed, how did they overcome that? How were they able to own their pricing? The best way is through research. I believe if you're selling something new to you personally, for instance, when I branched out from writing articles for publications to ghostwriting books, I didn't have a good sense of exactly how much time it would take to do a book. And I did a couple of books with um, preliminary clients where I probably didn't price them appropriately because I really was guessing to some extent. Then at a certain point, I contacted other colleagues who were about the same level as I am in my career, and I asked them what they charge. And I find there are a lot of friendly competitors out there. They can't take on any more work than they already have, so they can be a good source of information. And then when someone asked me what my pricing is, I could say I charge the going rate for people at my level in this field. And it's about this, you know, and, and of course there's some negotiating room depending on the parameters of the project. But for me, that was really helpful. I think for, for a lot of um, the entrepreneurs, there is an element of research. For instance, in my first book, The Million Dollar One Person Business, I wrote about Brooklyn Inn, which is a direct-to-consumer brand that sells sheets um, with designs that they found men were requesting like plaid. Apparently, many sheets are made in prints that are more popular with women, like floral prints, for instance. And they went on the floor of big box stores. It's a husband and wife team that run the company. And they asked people 
what they were paying for sheets and what they would be willing to pay for sheets of a certain quality based on thread count, et cetera. And that was how they arrived at their pricing. Sometimes what's interesting is if you price your service too low, it will not sell as well. People will think the quality is lower. And that's what happened with um, Nomad Lane. It's a company that is run by Kish Fasnani and Vanessa Jaswani, a married couple, and they sell travel bags. And initially, they priced them at $100, and then everybody um, who was buying them said you, you, they were underpricing them. And when they doubled them to $200, they did better. Um, the same thing happened. There, there's another um, entrepreneur in Tiny Business Big Money who runs Insolia, which sells inserts for high heels. And she went to a pricing seminar, which is another strategy to get your pricing right, and she was undercharging for them. And when she doubled the price, they started selling better. People equate price with quality. So it's important to understand how much people are currently paying for something that's of high quality. And that goes not just for a product, but a service. For instance, if you're a blogger, there may be people in some parts of the world that can charge $10 for a blog because the cost of living is a fraction of what it is in the U.S. But if you're in the U.S. and a blog goes for X amount and you're charging much less, people may wonder, why are you not as good of a writer? So I think it's important to understand that there's a psychology of pricing. There's actually a really great author named Herman Simon who has written a number of books on pricing um, one of them is called Confessions of a Pricing Man, and he runs a whole pricing consultancy in Germany and uh, has studied pricing around the world. So if you want to learn more about it, that is a really good source of information. But Elaine, that's really a, a great point that you make, because when you do your research and you make it based on factual information, you remove yourself from the equation. And, and the reason I, I wanted to bring this up, there are so many entrepreneurs that I know who do everything right, you know, they, they have the experience, they build the company, but when it comes to pricing for their services, they get stuck. And so I, I think that was really wonderful advice to do your homework, do your research and remove the emotion from it. It's important to price things correctly because of sustainability. If you price things too low, what will happen is you won't be there anymore in business. You'll have to get a job and then you won't be able to help your customers. So when you find yourself faltering, it's important to think about how can I do this profitably? You don't want to overcharge people, but if you're undercharging, how long will you really be able to stay in business unless someone else is completely subsidizing you, which most of us don't have? You really need to price things so that you can be there to serve your customers, and they will want you to price things appropriately. They don't want to cheat you or, or underpay you. The good customers don't because they'll want to work with you again. And I think that's an important thing to remind yourself of. You're of no, it's like your own oxygen mask. You're not of any help to anyone else if you're, you're going out of business. And the interesting thing about imposter syndrome, every person that I've interviewed who's very successful has said at one point or another, he or she has felt the same way. But sometimes when we're feeling that way, we think we're the only ones. A lot of the people that you've interviewed who are very successful in their businesses, did they go through this as well? It comes up very frequently when when I speak with them. There's, there's always that fake it till you make it moment. I think that's what every entrepreneur realizes. When you're growing professionally and you're growing as an entrepreneur, you're going to 
find yourself in situations where you feel a little bit in over your head. It's like you're in the deep end of the swimming pool and you have no idea how you got there or how you're going to stay afloat, but somehow they always do. Um, and that's a sign of growth. So if you look at that feeling as a sign that you're really challenging yourself, I think it's a way to get through it. You don't want to push yourself to the point where you're about to have a nervous breakdown from it because <laughs> that's too hard. But, but that little nudge to yourself to, to challenge yourself is a good thing. I know um, James Taylor is a public speaker. He does keynote speeches. And a lot of times when he's developing a new speech, he's still working on it, practicing it with different Rotary clubs. He'll start marketing it ahead of time um, before he's actually finished the speech. But he knows that he'll keep on practicing it until it's ready. So by the time if someone does decide to hire him to come and speak to their company, it will be ready by that time. But he has to market things in advance. So that's that's another strategy is is to make sure you're putting in the work to get to the point of proficiency that you need to be to achieve a big goal. And that helps to take care of the imposter syndrome. I'm sure at the moment of closing the sale when the speech isn't fully baked yet. There might be a little twinge of that, but he also knows that he will go out. He calls it the ham salad tour. He'll go to anywhere that will have him come speak to keep on working on that speech. So that that is a useful technique, I think, to put in the work, view it as a practice, but, but set goals that you know you can eventually get to that aren't so far ahead of where you are right now in terms of your capabilities that you will fail. Part, part of imposter syndrome is good. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you really can't handle it yet because then you will have a terrible sense of failure. And part of being an entrepreneur is self-knowledge of how much you can grow within a certain amount of time to get to where you want to be. And that self-knowledge is so important, Elaine. I see a lot of people on social media. I, I look at things with a marketing PR type of eye, and, and I see some things that people are doing, and it just looks like they're throwing a lot of spaghetti on the wall, seeing what will stick. And mm-hmm. they really don't appear to have a sense of who they are as an entrepreneur. Do, do you find that a lot? I think there is a period in the beginning for every entrepreneur where they're trying to figure out what their niche is. For, for the businesses I write about, success usually comes with defining a very narrow niche. But in the beginning, maybe you have several areas of interest and you're not sure how to narrow them down. I remember when I started my business 15 years ago, I was so happy to be a freelance writer because finally I could write stories for multiple publications. And if there was a story that the one publication I worked for didn't want it, because they weren't interested in that topic, I could still find a market for it. But what happened was I put myself out there saying, I write about entrepreneurship, careers, parenting, because I have four children, green living, because I'm interested in it, et cetera. And I think it's harder for people to pin you down when you have too many specialties. So I decided just through trial and error, the first couple of years of running my business, it was better to specialize in entrepreneurship and sometimes those other interests would overlap but it's hard to become so knowledgeable about the subtopics you're interested in that you can be competitive so for instance even though I'm a parent and I've raised four children I'm really not up on the latest thinking on parenting in terms of what's being discussed in the media what articles have been written already who are the leading experts on parenting I couldn't tell you those things so 
I'm at a disadvantage relative to entrepreneurship where I'm completely immersed in it all the time. So I think with some of these folks that are throwing spaghetti at the wall, they're in that phase that I was at, but you can get out of it once you start to realize where can you be most competitive, what do you enjoy the most, what are you willing to spend extra time thinking, reading, learning about, what areas of your business do you enjoy, the people aspects the most, what are the most profitable. You'll start to figure those things out, and then those extra things will fall away. Um, but it is confusing, you're right. In the beginning, when someone isn't very well-defined as, as an entrepreneur, it is hard for people to know if they should hire them or not. Yeah, I, th I think what happens is you become afraid that if you get too focused, you're going to miss out on markets that will bring you money, but it's actually the opposite that happens. You know, it's kind of counterintuitive that being so niche-focused is the right way to go, but when you think about it, how many solopreneurs or owners of very small businesses can take on Amazon, for instance, if you're an e-commerce entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. The ones that I have written about that have been successful have had very narrow niches, and that's how they've succeeded. For instance, Rim Sports is a company that sells CrossFit gear in colors aimed at women. They realized that there weren't a lot of, of um, brands that were targeting women with you know, bright colors. Everything was pretty much in black, and there were a lot of women getting into this sport, and that's how they've been in business for several years. If they tried to take on all the CrossFit manufacturers in the country, they, it, they would never succeed because it's too big of a market. And I think everybody can benefit from that type of thinking. Where can you go really deep on something? And in this case, it was personal because Angie Raja, who um, co-founded the business with her husband, Colin, was doing it herself. And she hated the gear that was out there because of the colors. So she knew that there were other people like herself and they did a lot of market research. And that was how they found their niche. Even Brooklyn, in which I mentioned the sheet company, there are a lot of sheet companies that know that the majority of linens are purchased by women. So they come out with a lot of prints that target women. And Brooklyn saw that, well, what about the guys that have to outfit their apartment or their house? They're not finding a lot of prints that they like, and that was they went deep with that. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of lessons in that for anybody who has a limited budget, because if you have more money, then you can you can introduce a lot of different products or a lot of different services. Um, but if you're small, you won't be able to support all of those things. It's better to just go high quality with one. Colleen, how do you? think the past few years, all that we've been through, how has that impacted entrepreneurs and small business owners? Do you think we're coming out of it? Are we coming out of it differently? It's very interesting, Joan. I was just thinking about this this morning, and I think for a long time, most of us were in a semi-funk, if not a full-blown funk, because we were cut off from so many of the things that we enjoy in life, like social connection, going to the gym, you know, for our kids being able to go to school and see their friends. And then it was a slow transition out of pandemic mode. But now I see a lot of people getting a second win. During that time, there was a lot of introspection and people were thinking about what really matters to me. Am I happy with my lifestyle? What am I going to do once the pandemic is over? Where am I going to go? Who am I going to see? What do I hope to accomplish? And we have a new appreciation 
for all the freedoms we have back again. And I, I see a lot of people doing different things with their business than they were doing before. For instance, I wrote a story about Sol Orwell, who runs examine.com, and it's a site that sells reports about nutrients. And what he did during the pandemic was instead of organizing the site around vitamin D and vitamin C, he reorganized it around different health topics like heart disease, uh, trying to get pregnant, or you know, different things like that, so that people could find the nutritional information they needed for their problems, and he decided to scale up the business. He was one of the original million-dollar one-person businesses. For years, he ran the business with all contractors, and now he decided to hire employees. He wants to get to nine-figure revenue. He thought that he would have more of an impact by scaling up. Others have decided to double down and stay very boutique and have more time for their families or other things that they're interested in, charitable work. And that's been very interesting, but I think there's a new authenticity where people have really gotten to know themselves and what they want. And they're also so worn down, they can't keep up any pretenses or things that they feel they should do just for the sake of what other people think. I, I think in a lot of cases, people were going to jobs that they didn't like, and they felt like, okay, this is what a good uh person does, you know, who has a family and a house, they go to a job that they hate, they suck it up, they get on the train, they commute. And I think people got so worn out that if that was not serving them well, they said, hey, wait a minute, I'm a person too. I'm so tired of that. I have a toxic boss. I don't want to go on the train anymore. It takes up too much of my time. I never have time to work out. I never have time for my family. I'm going to make a change, even if it means making some financial sacrifices. Or I'm going to find a job where I can work from home and maybe have a side hustle. There are a lot of people who started side hustles during the pandemic. I think there was a big re-examination and also this phenomenon where it's almost like they just did a thousand push-ups and their arms are shaking and they can't force themselves to do anything else that they don't want to do. So now what's happened is it's cleared space for them to do what's really true to them, whatever it is, without regard for what society thinks they should do or their parents think or other people that they feel are dictating to them what they should do. They're doing what they really want to do. And that could be one of the biggest blessings that came out of a horrific time for all of us. And um, if you'd like to learn more about Elaine Pofelt and her work, you can visit ElainePofelt.com. And once again, Elaine's books are Million Dollar One Person Business and Tiny Business Big Money. Elaine, in about 30 seconds or less, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your best tip to help an entrepreneur or small business owner succeed? Keep showing up. Do your business the way you would a yoga practice, a martial arts practice. You never know what day the miracle will come in your business if you don't show up for it. But if you do, it may just surprise you on the day you be expected. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. You are always such a wealth of information, and I look forward to the next time you'll come back on the show. Thank you so much, Joan. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, 
C-Y-A, C-Y-L.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.